1: You are listening to Episode 6 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Previously on Quarter Share Now for the first time in my life I wanted to make some decisions. Life on the freighter was just strange enough to appeal to me. Just the idea of it was intriguing. Close, I said. What I really need is a full share rating in every division. There's a lot of turnover with cargo handlers. The work's kind of boring and relies more on muscle than mind at the lower ratings. If you're trying to maximize employability, having your cargo rating would be a good step. Chapter 9. Darbot System 2351. September twenty-eight. The run into Darbot orbital wasn't anything terribly different from the run out of Nera's. The daily mess cycle gave Pip, Cookie, and me a structure to our day that became second nature. Cookie and Pip would closet themselves with the computer and whatever simulations they were running during the afternoon break. I took that opportunity to load up engineering training, intending to take the enginement exam after Darbot. I flashed through the instructional component in about a week and started taking the practice tests. I didn't do too badly, but I couldn't seem to get a passing grade. The cargo materials, on the other hand, were as Mr. Von Nichols had hinted. Container types, cargo handling procedures, various techniques for securing containers, and the proper way to use cargo manipulation tools like grav pallets. Not a lot of meat there, and I could see where somebody might get a bit bored. Cargo handlers basically stacked it in, made sure it didn't move while we were underway and unpacked it on the other end. I vowed never to complain about mess duty again, as I tried to envision 40 days in a row of, yep, it's still there. Of course, the other side of that coin would be you'd have a lot of time to study for another rating. Looking ahead at cargomen, you actually began to get into some various cargo types, trade rules, and some other more interesting stuff about what cargoes to go after. Margins, profit, more safety regulations, that kind of thing. Mr. Von Nichols' comment about turnover at the cargo handler level made a lot more sense once I saw what the job was, at least on tablet. I ran through the cargo handler instructional materials in one evening and took the practice exam just for fun. I aced it. Thinking it was a fluke, I tried another practice the next afternoon. I aced that one, too. Smiling, I sent a calendar note to Mr. Von Nichols to reserve a seat at the cargo handler rating exams when they came up mid-morning about a week after jumping into darbot we had a suit drill pip and i were just finishing up the breakfast cleanup when the klaxons started doing a whoop whoop sound at about a billion decibels pip and cookie dropped everything and ran to a panel at the back of the galley by the time the klaxons stopped and the announcement came they'd already pulled out three lightweight suits with helmets attached and tossed one at me Now this is a drill. This is a drill. Environmental integrity has been breached. All hands don protective gear. All hands don protective gear. This is a drill. This is a drill. The sudden silence was a blessed relief as I struggled to get into my suit. I had one leg in and was working on the other when I noticed Pip and Cookie standing over me, looking down through their clear helmets. Pip looked at Cookie for permission before opening his helmet. This, he said, indicating me sitting there on the deck with his hand, is why we drill. Cookie was talking inside his suit, but I couldn't make out the words. It sounded like a report, very short, very formal tone. I continued to struggle into my suit, but before I got the second leg fully in, the announcement came, Now all hands secure from drill, all hands secure from drill. The captain's follow-up announcement came immediately after. This is the captain speaking. Very good work, people. At the end of three minutes, only one person was listed as dead. Carry on. "'Dead?' I asked. Cookie was taking off his suit now, and he nodded. "'You have three minutes to get into a suit when the alarm sounds, young Ishmael. If you don't make it, your department head lists you as dead.' He looked sad enough that I thought perhaps I should check to see if I were still alive, drill or not. Pip and Cookie stripped off their suits, marked them as used by pulling a red tab on the hanger, and racked them back in the locker.' Afterwards, Pip helped me, and we practiced with the suit for a stand before we had to set it aside and help Cookie with lunch. During the mess line, nobody mentioned it, but I could feel my ears burning, and I was certain everybody knew I was the deader. After lunch and subsequent clean-up, Pip continued to drill me. But after two more stands of practice, I was still having trouble getting the suit untangled. My feet kept getting tangled in the legs no matter what I did. The longer it took, the more frustrated I became. Pip, for his part, never tired and was right there helping me learn how to stay alive, encouraging me with, "'Just one more time. You'll get it this time.' Cookie came over to watch us after a time and watched me struggle under Pip's direction for about three ticks. Then he interrupted, "'Very funny, Mr. Costas. Now would you care to show him how to do it correctly?' Pip had the decency to look abashed as he had me turn the suit around. "'You had me trying to put it on backwards,' for the last two stands? I exploded. Pip nodded. Yeah, sorry, he said, but it was just too good a chance to miss. Jackanapes, Cookie said, cuffing Pip on the back of the skull. What if he'd needed to get into that suit in a real emergency? But I was having trouble not laughing myself, even as the butt of his joke. Cookie took the suit then, folded it up so it looked like it came from the locker, and showed me where to grab it. A quick flick of the wrists, and I was able to step in, pull it up, and shrug into it in almost one smooth movement. A quick toss of my head, and the helmet slid into place, and I was able to lock it down on the first try. They took turns showing me how to deal with things like the radio and the patch kit. They pointed out the instrument patch mounted on the sleeve. Cookie pointed to the air supply timer. There is one hour of air on this suit. It's for emergency use only. Use it to get to a soft suit or a lifeboat cannot survive long in it, so you must be very sure you know what's going on around you if you ever have to put it on. Pip patted me on the back. Next time you won't be the dead one, he said jubilantly. Next time, I asked. Cookie nodded. We do this at least every ninety days, sometimes more. I took the suit off then, folded it in the approved manner, and, putting the used indicator across the top, hung it with Pip and Cookie's used suits. Several more were in the locker." "'What happens to the used ones?' I asked. "'Somebody from engineering will collect them and reset them for use. "'Never take a used emergency suit, because you never know how much air it has left,' Cookie said. "'You can't change out of them in a vacuum, and it would be tragic to need forty-five ticks and only have thirty. That was a sobering thought, and I took it to heart. As I closed the panel, I reached for my tablet. The ship's schematic had an overlay showing all the emergency suit lockers. I made a mental note of the one nearest to my bunk.' Cookie, in the meantime, turned to Pip. I think you will be doing evening cleanup alone for the next week, Mr. Carstairs, he said sternly. Pip nodded. Aye, aye, Cookie, he said, but he still had a big grin on his face. So did I, for that matter. It wasn't something to joke about, but still it struck me funny. Personally, I think Cookie left the galley then, so he could have a good laugh, too. Funny as it was, I was getting a little tired of being surprised, so I went to Beverly after cleanup. I found her in her bunk, reading something on her tablet. "'Bev, can you help me?' I asked. She glanced at me. "'Dunno,' she said. "'What you need?' "'What's the story on these drills?' I asked. "'I'm getting tired of being surprised and getting caught off guard by them.' She chuckled. "'Well, they're supposed to be a surprise, but if you've never been through the drill I can see where you'd be frustrated.' I nodded. "'It is. I'm okay with fire drill and suit drill now, but are there others coming that I should know about?' It's on your tablet under Ship Emergency Procedures, but I think the only one we haven't been through now is Lifeboat Drill. Do you know where your boat assignment is? I shook my head. Look up your record on your tablet. It's down near the bottom. So I pulled out the tablet and found my record, and there at the bottom I found a note. It says Boat 4, I told her. Odd to port, even to starboard, she said. 4 should be the second boat back from the bow. You know where the boat deck is, right? I nodded. I've seen the hatches under the track in the gym, but I didn't look too closely at them. Next time you're in the gym, she said, take a look at the big numbers on each hatch. Make sure you know where Boat 4 is. That's it, I asked her. She thought for a moment before saying, Oh, there's some specialized drills, damage control and battle stations and such, but we do those once and forever. Fire suit and lifeboat are the big three. We're required to do each of them once a quarter, so get used to them. Thanks, Bev. I'll remember. I climbed up into my bunk, and on a hunch I went through the handbook and found a section on klaxon calls. The raspy buzz of fire, the hoop-hoop of hull breach, and the pingity-pingity-pingity of abandoned ship were all there, along with battle stations, general quarters, and a dozen others I didn't recognize. Even mealtimes had special tones that could be used to announce to passengers and crew when dinner was served. We were still a week out of Darbot orbital when I made arrangements to visit Environmental during the afternoon break. I'd been working through all of the instructional materials in engineering. But I hadn't been able to score a passing grade on the practice tests. It wasn't any one thing I was missing, but rather a kind of diffuse inability to keep the environmental stuff straight. All the scrubbers, filters, cleaners, and recyclers kept getting jumbled up in my head. So I contacted the section chief on my tablet and made an appointment for a tour. I knew the environmental section chief, Spec 1 Environmental, Brilliantine Smith, from seeing her on the mess line. She was easily the tallest person on the ship. I'd guess her height at something over two full meters. I'd seen her in the gym in the sauna. There wasn't an extra gram of fat on her frame that I'd seen. She was very well proportioned, and a smaller woman might have been called willowy. She kept her chocolate brown hair short like the rest of the crew and had a kind of generic galactic citizen one-each appearance, other than the fact that she had to duck her head to pass through most of the hatches in the ship. She walked with a kind of stoop, learned through hard experience, no doubt. She had a broad, pleasant face, and seemed to be always smiling. Stepping into environmental for the first time, the first thing I noticed was the humidity. It was like stepping into wet gauze. The smell was second, but I didn't really find it objectionable. It was kind of funky and green-smelling. Not quite fishy, but there was a hint of that, too. Smith watched as I stepped through the hatch, nodded approvingly. "'You're okay,' she said. "'Excuse me, sir,' I said. She grinned. "'No, sir, for me-ish. I'm no more officer than cookie.' She grinned even more. Just taller. They call me Brillo, among other less flattering appellations, I'm certain. I see, I said, although I'm sure I only got about half of what she was saying. You're okay because you didn't wrinkle your nose when you came in, she continued. That's good, I asked. She nodded. Between the humidity and the smell, about half the people that come in here turn right around and leave. The humidity's from the algae matrices, and the smell is from the algae. I nodded. Okay, that much I understand. "'So how far have you gotten in the instruction materials?' she asked. "'All of it, actually,' I admitted. "'But I can't seem to pass the practice test. "'Things I get right on one I miss on the next, "'and around and around and around. "'I I can't seem to keep the scrubbers and the filters straight. "'Filter the water and scrub the air down. "'Mix water and algae and make it all brown,' she chanted with a smile. "'It makes sense,' I said, as I replayed it slowly in my brain. She nodded. First practical advice we give people. Water gets filtered and air gets scrubbed. Then they get mixed together. It starts with running the water through a collection of different media to filter out finer and finer impurities. Eventually it goes to the scrubbers, where it keeps the algae matrices wet. That's probably where your brain gets confused because the scrubbers work on both air and water. Okay, that makes sense so far. So the air doesn't get filtered. "'Actually, it does, but we don't have a separate filtering system for it, not like the water. There's a simple electrostatic field that the air is passed through when it first comes into the system. It snags all the dust and other particulates out of the air. Technically, that's not a filter, because a filter is a physical barrier, like the coffee filter,' she said with a grin. The weave in the paper has holes that allow the coffee-infused water to pass without permitting the grounds themselves. Same idea with the water system, although the chemical processing is a bit more complex.' That made sense to me, so I nodded. And because the air is passed through a field, not a physical barrier, you call it scrubbing instead of filtering. Exactly, she nodded approvingly. The scrubbers also grab out any odd gases that make their way into the system. Byproducts from work on the ship, like trace amounts of free esters, ozone, and the like. The goal is to keep the proportions of oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and the trace gases consistent. The air coming into the system is high in carbon dioxide and low in oxygen, so we feed it into the wet algae matrix, where the algae absorb the carbon dioxide and produce oxygen. You ever notice that the birthing areas don't smell like a locker room? I nodded. The algae like the stuff that makes that smell. It would reek except for that. Right. Thanks. That helps, I said. Hey, come on, she beckoned. I'll give you the half-cred tour. For the next stand, she showed me the inner workings that kept our air and water clean. I expected to be sort of disgusted by some of the processing. Sewage isn't exactly a nice thing. But I soon found myself absorbed in the way the air and the water systems intertwined on the ship. There was a certain amount of unrecoverable waste, but almost 98% of the air and the water was recycled. At each port, we topped off the things that got lost, used up, or destroyed. I even got a sick little giggle out of the idea that coffee was continually recycled through the crew's kidneys, down to environmental, and back to the mess deck where it started the cycle anew. When she showed me the algae matrices, the makes-it-all-brown part of the doggerel became apparent. Algae were blue-green variety, according to the handbook, but when they were wet, exposed to light, and healthy, the matrix itself wasn't green at all, but a kind of reddish-brown. The matrix was a synthetic film that held each little alga suspended to maximize its surface exposure. My preconceived notions about having the blue-green pond scum and tanks down here were blown out of the lock. I laughed and said, I don't know why, but I had this idea I'd find big vats of bubbling slime. She smiled. That's a common misconception. The bacterial recovery tanks are the closest we come, but those don't bubble. We actually have to aerate them to keep the aerobic bacteria alive, not the other way around. She looked pensive. Now if we could just find a use for the sludge... I chuckled. Interesting idea, but what would you do with it? She shrugged. I don't know. We press it into blocks, freeze-dry it, and give it away to planets that need terraforming materials, she said. It's not worth selling, and we're prohibited from jettisoning it. That struck me so oddly, I laughed. Are they afraid the galaxy will fill up? I asked. She shook her head, no. Actually, the problem is that back in the thirties, it used to be okay to just drop them out the airlock, and one wound up splattered across the main viewing port of a passenger liner. She did a good job of keeping a straight face. Better than I could, and I burst out laughing. My break was over at that point, and I had to get back to the mess deck. Thanks, Burlow, I told her. This has helped a lot. For the rest of the day I kept chanting, "Filter the water and scrub the air down, mix water and algae to make it all brown," over and over in my head. Two days later I took another practice test and passed. Not perfect, but it was the first passing mark in the engineering materials I'd gotten. I felt jubilant.
0: As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch.
1: 2351 October 22 The final docking at Darbot Orbital was just the reverse of leaving Nereus felt rather strange after spending practically my whole life on Nereus here I was going to visit a different planet or at least its orbital I confessed to a certain amount of excitement at the prospect although I knew rationally it wouldn't be all that different The timing for the docking maneuver itself was a bit different because we set navigational detail right after lunch Everybody was able to get a meal into them before we started the process, and we spent the afternoon watch doing the docking maneuvers themselves. No bento box lunches, and no extra work for us. All Pip and I had to do was the normal post-lunch clean-up and hang out till the ship was secured. Cookie was planning for a small meal at eighteen hundred, but only one of us, Pip or I, needed to be there. Cookie said, "'Ah, if there are more than three people left aboard for dinner, besides the watch section and the first mate, I'll be very surprised.' first night in port is usually the quietest. You gentlemen split it up. We've got a four-day port stay. Work it out between you. Post it on the duty roster so I know who to look for. I was actually looking forward to docking, not because I was planning to leave the ship, well, other than to stroll around the orbital and stretch my legs, see the sights a bit, because I was looking forward to the relatively relaxed duty that came with having most of the crew ashore. Finally the announcement came. All hands secure from navigation detail, secure ship for port operations. Third watch has the con. We looked at each other, and Pip was grinning. I knew he was thinking about the bottles of Grisham in his locker. And we headed for the berthing area just in time to hear, Now, liberty, liberty, liberty! Hands not on duty may leave the ship according to standing orders and established procedures. Now, liberty! There was a hooting cheer coming from the berthing areas, and we stumbled into a maelstrom of half clothed bodies, grinning crew, loud plans, brags, and general teasing. Pip and I jumped into our respective bunks to free the floor space and plan. "'You go, Pip,' I said. "'I'll take duty tonight, so you can take care of your business. "'Thanks-ish. "'I'll come back for dinner tomorrow, and you can take the next twenty-four. I nodded. I was in no particular hurry, and I knew he needed to finish this one deal off and find another. Of course, I was pretty sure he had another deal lined up already, but I didn't ask. I dug into my studies, but there was so much noise in the birthing area that it, it was all but impossible to do anything.' I checked my cred balance on the tablet and saw that I'd been paid, and it looked like the right amount—less charges for dues, taxes, ship suits, and my running shoes. It didn't seem like a lot for almost seven weeks' work, but the share amount was half again more than my pay for this leg, so I really couldn't complain much. The share offset the deductions with a little more, but I could see where doing a bit of private trading might pay off. At sixteen hundred I went up to the mess deck to help Cookie with the evening meal, not like he needed it really, but mostly to give myself something to do away from the still noisy berthing area. I took a certain satisfaction draining out the two partial coffee urns, leaving the full one for dinner, and already looking forward to having an urn last for more than three hours at a time. I grinned, thinking of the filters down below, processing the coffee. Filter the water and scrub the air down, I thought. After almost seven weeks of serving a full crew under way, port duty was easy. I had a nice evening working with Cookie. He was kind enough to help me clean up afterwards. So, how's it going with Pip, I asked, as I swept out the galley. You two have certainly had your heads together. Ah, Ishmael, he said, I really should thank you for breaking through Pip's story. He's a most remarkable young man. He's something, I agreed. I'm not exactly sure what, I added with a smile. Cookie chuckled. He has a most unusual way of looking at things. "'So what are these simulations you're running?' I asked. Cookie smiled and said, "'We're experimenting with some options for acquiring the foodstuffs we need for the ship in some rather innovative ways.' "'Oh?' I asked, in what I hoped was an adequate imitation of my mother's ability to evoke additional information. "'Ah, Ishmael, not yet,' he replied. "'When the time is ripe, all will be clear.' In the meantime, and he slid an index finger alongside his nose— We'll just keep on as we are, eh?" I have to confess that this intrigued me even more, but it was obvious that Cookie certainly knew how to keep his own counsel, and I was unlikely to get more out of him—at least directly. As it turns out, I didn't have to wait long for my first real clues. We filled the rest of our work time with small talk about Darbot Orbital, its restaurants, dives, and even less savory attractions. Cookie was a compendium of information and I took as much care to note some of the more interesting items on his litany of places to stay away from as from his recommendations for port activities. The evening routine took almost no time compared to a normal evening. By nineteen hundred I was running laps and looking forward to the sauna. Sandy Belterson came up from behind me and started matching my strides. I smiled in greeting. "'Hey, Ish,' she said. We'd run together several times since our first conversation. I found her to be a good, companionable running partner. Often we said nothing more than hi to each other. That night she wanted to talk, it seems. Hey, Sandy, you're not on station? I asked. No, nah, she replied. I've got duty tomorrow with first watch. If I go out tonight, it wouldn't be as much fun. I'll get a night on the town before we leave, she smiled wolfishly, but I try to pace myself. You? Pip and I split the stay. He get first night, and we'll trade off. We can't go on station together because one of us has to be on duty. She nodded, and we ran a lap in silence. What's he doing? she asked breaking the silence. "'What, what?' I asked. "'Who, Pip?' She nodded. "'I saw him scurrying off the ship with a duffel. He's trading, isn't he?' I nodded. "'Yeah,' was all I would commit to. She nodded again. "'I hope he does well. He's a nice guy.' "'Why wouldn't he?' I asked, as we paused at the head of the ladder. I was trying to decide if I wanted to run another lap or just head for the sauna. "'It's a tough thing to succeed at, particularly in quarter share.' A mass allotment is okay for personal gear, but it's really small to try to make a profit in trading, unless you know what you're doing. It's hard to diversify enough, and one bad deal can be a big setback. Her words sent a chilly premonition across my shoulders. Glass bottles were so fragile, and I hoped he really did know what he was doing. Yeah, well, he's a funny guy, I observed. I don't wonder he has depths we haven't even seen yet. She nodded. Yeah, well, true of all of us, eh? I decided to make one more lap before calling it after all, and started running again. Sandy fell in step with me and asked, "'So, how's the half-share thing, Cohen?' I nodded. "'Not bad. I'll be taking the test next time. I've already talked to Mr. Von Ickels.' "'She beamed. That's great. Which one?' "'Engineering,' I said. "'Excellent,' she replied. "'And cargo,' I added. "'What? Two? I shrugged. Our conversation was suffering from the running. The pace was too fast. "'Why not? What's the cost?' "'I might pass one, or the other, or both,' I noted. "'And if I don't pass either, I just try again next time.' "'True,' she panted. "'Are you ready?' "'I think so,' I shrugged. "'Won't know for sure till the test, will I?' She nodded, flicking a stream of sweat out of her eye with the side of her hand. "'Tests are free. There's no downside to failing them, and if I get both ratings, that doubles my chances for half if I need to find a new berth,' I panted. "'You're full of surprises,' she panted back. We slowed the pace for the last half-lap, cooling a bit and both thinking our own thoughts. I was thinking about Pip and hoping he really was okay. I wasn't thinking at all about the probably empty sauna and this wonderful woman who was running beside me and what might happen if we both got into the sauna. It never crossed my mind. Luckily, she showered and disappeared, so I never found out what I might not have been thinking. The sauna wasn't empty, though. Mr. Maxwell was there. He nodded when I came in. Mr. Huang! he said. "'Mr. Maxwell, sir,' I smiled in what I hoped was a winning manner, and took a seat not too close to appear rude if he wanted to be alone, nor so far away as to appear rude if he was going to talk to me. "'Mr. Von Nichols tells me you're thinking of going for four different ratings,' he commented, as if to the steam at the top of the sauna. "'Ah, yes, sir, I am thinking that.' "'Interesting approach,' he said. "'Are you worried about being stranded somewhere?' His head swiveled to aim his eyes at me through the murk. "'Not exactly, sir,' I replied. "'I was very worried about what he might be thinking, "'and was not used to trying to explain to such lofty individuals as the First Mate. "'I didn't know how much to say.' "'Well, Mr. Huang, what?' "'Exactly. "'Are you thinking?' he asked. "'And when I looked over at him, he was—I was shocked to see—smiling. "'I was almost too surprised to answer. Uh, "'Well, sir, I, uh, I don't know what I want to do.' But these last five weeks have been the most challenging and oddly enjoyable in my admittedly short life. Yes, he prompted. I could tell he had the tell-me-more thing down. I can't explain it, but I suppose the best word is therapeutic, I answered. It occurred to me, at that instant, that therapeutic was exactly the word, and if Mr. Maxwell wanted to talk to me, then by the holy I was going to talk back. He chuckled softly and added seriously, I lost my parents only recently. It wasn't as big a shock as it must have been for you. I'm sorry to hear that, sir. Thank you, Mr. Huang, but you haven't explained why yet, he prompted. Well, sir, being stuck on Nerys, needing to get off planet before the company deported me, and having no real idea of how or what to do, it made me feel very small and helpless, and I didn't like that feeling. He grunted. I lucked out when Ms. O'Rourke helped me but I'm not sure I can count on or trust luck. I don't ever want to be stranded like that again, I added, somewhat more vehemently than I'd intended. Mr. Maxwell smiled again, a thoroughly disconcerting expression, and said, So you're going for all four half-share ratings to maximize your ability to get a berth, just on the off chance that you're stuck somewhere. I nodded. "'Yes, sir, partly, but the other part is that I really never expected to be working on a freighter, not in my wildest dreams. I have no idea what rating I might like, because I know almost nothing about any of them. The only way to find out is to study and perhaps do some of them to see for myself.' He nodded. Prudent, was all he said. I felt the irrational need to respond, and said, "'Thank you, sir.' Mr. Maxwell stood then and headed out to the showers. "'Carry on, Mr. Wong. You've set yourself an interesting task.' "'Good luck with it,' he said, as he disappeared out the door. I basked in the heat for a few more minutes, still somewhat shaken by the experience and not entirely trusting my legs. And, to give Mr. Maxwell time to finish his shower and leave, truth be told. One close encounter with him was enough for one night. Junior crew don't associate with senior officers, as a rule. Later, on a whim, I checked my tablet. The ship's record showed everybody's ratings. Mr. Maxwell held all four. So did the captain. None of the other officers held any crew ratings at all, although they did have the appropriate civilian licenses for their jobs. I wondered at that as I drifted off to sleep in the nearly silent birthing area. Tabitha was staying on station. I kind of missed her little snorty snores. Thanks for listening to Episode 6 of Quarter Share a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from The Lucky Black Cat, a hornpipe in A minor, recorded by James Curran, available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the golden age, visit www.durandis.com slash golden.